It's a, almost a magical time of year and not because it's spring break. Spring break is, is early or kind of on normal time, I suppose, but Easter is early. It's coming and it comes with a rush. And when it comes this early, it really comes with a rush. And so these last two weeks, as you continue your journey toward the cross, I pray that the power of the resurrected one will resurrect you. So that on Easter morning, you might rise again in newness of life, in the full strength of birth that Christ intends for us all. To know that the resurrection and the resurrected life is not simply a one-time occurring event in your life, is to claim great power in the ongoing work of God among his people. It allows us to overcome our past so that our present is filled with vitality and our future lined with hope. So as we come here this morning to worship, we come as a people with a past who are alive in the present and yearning into the future that God has planned for us. And so as we move forward, we continue to follow this theme for this week and one week more about this divergent Jesus. I'll admit when I got that inspiration to name the sermon series that, I got a big smile from Lauren when I told her first. I think she thought, he's finally done it. He's over the edge. He has no clue where he's going. And she was right for the most part. But I had an idea, an idea I wanted to explore. And this week, since we're not real crowded, because some people are still coming back from their week off, it's a good time to tackle something a little harder. Another way in which Jesus is divergent, and yet a way that, quite frankly, if you claim you know it all, I will invite you to preach. Okay, maybe I won't. But if you understand this, you're a long way ahead of your faith walk. And it is a tough topic I'm going to address today in this beginning, especially about what it means for Jesus to be divergent. You said you forgot to read the scripture, Pastor. Are you going to make us stand up again? No, we're going to have scripture throughout today. We're going to have references to a lot of scripture rather than a particular passage. First of all, I just want you to glory in the story of Jesus in the Gospels. It's a great time to pull out a chronological Bible, if you have one, and just start reading through the Gospels. You have four of those books, and when they're all put together, they're a little shorter than one because they don't retell the story in a different way. They just tell it like it is and something of a timeline. So it's a great way to experience Easter if you concentrate on that story because really Lent, the life of Jesus that leads up to the resurrected Christ, is the story of the Gospels, and it is the story of our lives and the hope of our future. So to To glory in that and to pour into it, it's a great thing to do, even while you listen to the psalms and those catchy tunes and sing along with the psalmist. Now, when I think about the divergent Jesus, how is Christ so divergent as Jesus? It's a tough question, isn't it? I can remember sitting in class a long time ago when I was beginning my more serious theological journey, and when I was in seminary, I took an intro to theology class, and I can remember one day we got discussing the, the characteristics of Jesus, the man, and also the deity of Christ, and trying to put them together. And I can remember sitting there struggling with myself because in my usual beginning sense at that point in my life, I wanted to know when Jesus was the man and when Jesus was God. 
I figured he was fully human and fully divine. I'd gotten that part. I'd gotten the basic premise down pat. What I wanted to understand is how did I know when Jesus was acting in the Scriptures as a human, and when was he acting as one who was the, the Word, the Logos, the Son of God, the Christ of salvation? So I could ask you now, which stories do you see, and you go, yeah, there's Jesus the man. And then which stories do you read about, and you go, wow, there's Jesus the Christ. You got, you got them in mind? Are they running through your head? You say, well, when he was walking on the water, I don't think he was the man, right? And when he commanded the bread and the fishes to turn into a, a huge feast for 5,000, he obviously wasn't just any guy on the hillside, Right? Except he was. He was. And that is what we're trying to grasp. We're trying to grasp the mystery of the incarnation. The passage of scripture I read about last week from the second chapter in Philippians. And we're trying to grasp it in terms of the sense that the gospel of John talks about it. When it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we go, wow, that's cool, right? Yeah, it is cool. He was fully human, and he was fully divine. Uh, How does that work? How does that work in my head? Jesus, just like me, with all the feelings I have, and yet Jesus, not like me, who could speak and the storm would cease. Jesus, who could say, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead would be resuscitated. What exactly was going on inside Jesus' head? And what am I about to do to yours? I'm going to mess your head up. Because we logical thinking human beings love to think that God is limited by our own sense of logic. But he's not. In fact, when you ask me, when was Jesus fully Jesus, I would say every moment that he was on earth. And even when he was resurrected. And you would say, well, then when was he divine? I would say every moment that he existed with the Father in creation. And even when he became the man Jesus on earth. And even now when he reigns forever with God the Father. He was not one or the other, but he was both. The Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh, but he did not lose his deity. The deity lived in the flesh to make it all that God had ever wanted the flesh to be. These theories of understanding are important to Christians because otherwise we trip ourselves up and our logic turns into little sayings that we live by. Things like, well, I'm not Jesus. I'll never be like Jesus. Well, that's true. But it's also true that you can be like Jesus in many more ways than you currently are. And in the future, hopefully, that will be your reality. Because, you see, we were created in the image of God. We had the spirit of life breathed into us from the very moment of creation in its beginning. 
We have within us that image of God that no other creature or no other thing or personality has on the earth. Just last night, we went to see old friends. And you know, as you get older, you start talking about grandchildren and dogs. So we talked about the grandchildren, then we moved on to dogs because none of us were cat people. And they had to tell us about this dog they had adopted that was five years old. And this dog is so smart. I thought, are we still talking about grandchildren or are we back on the, on the dog? No, this dog we have is the smartest dog you've ever seen. I said, oh, okay, let me tell you a story, all right? The dog sits there in front of me, and I'm talking to the dog, and it's listening to me, and I say, go, go, with, go sit with your mama. And the dog looks at me, and I, and I say, not me talking, but my friend talking. He says, go sit with your mama. And the dog gets up, walks across the room, sits in front of his wife, and just looks at her like, here I am. He told me to come over here. Now, <laughs> I'm not a dog whisperer, but I'm pretty sure that he didn't exactly understand the way a human understands what the human was saying to the dog. The dog would like to think that way, but I do think somehow in the tone or the looks or whatever, the dog sensed he needed to move and do something, and so the dog did, and he was rewarded for now being the smartest dog on earth. I don't think their brain works like your brain most of the time, and I'm thankful for that. But the reality is, Things go on when we try to explain things that are a little bit beyond us. In Philippians, in verses 6 and 7, in the second chapter, it said, God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's it's just too much. In the Gospel of John, it, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We think about that, and we wanted to know when is Jesus the man, Jesus, and when is he the Christ? And the reality is that Jesus and the Christ coexisted in two natures together perfectly from the time that he became flesh and even throughout all eternity. Even now, I believe as Christ, he still has a touch of humanity that is there. You see, we talk about God and we talk about the things he did in the flesh and becoming fully human, experiencing what we experience experience. And yet we also talk about Jesus the man as being omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful. We talk about him being able to speak and, and creation responding. We talk about him having perfect knowledge of the Father like no human could ever have. We talk about him being wise and speaking with words of wisdom that the world had never known. Two natures, divine and human, not mixed in such a way that either of their distinctiveness is destroyed. That's what orthodox theology has proclaimed by years. Now, it's said in a lot more fancier words in books now, but I think the original words that have been part of the Protestant faith worked out over a few hundred years by the ancient church fathers ring truer sometimes than what we try to do with them to make it understandable in different ages. These two natures are not an absorption of one by the other, but rather two realities in one expression, two natures of the same person. They are not two separate selves, but one person. They are a union of two natures that is inseparable. 
Now, let's, let's play a little with that. Let's jump over to what we say at time weddings. And the two shall become one. But we obviously don't do that as well as God did in Jesus, do we? We become one, and then we become a half. Two become one, and then the one becomes two ones or two halves or something. It happens, doesn't it? Because we are not able to completely diverge at every moment because we are sinful and we are fallen. Jesus was not. His humanity and his divinity could coexist together and be perfect as intended in the creation of Adam and Eve and in a perfect relationship with the Father that sustained that nature that we cannot fully and rationally understand, but we proclaim it because the Scriptures declare it. We proclaim it because we see it in real life. We don't need to try and tear it down or divide it. We need to embrace it, to hold it, and to claim it. Because it is one of those things that makes us as Christians unique. It keeps us from worshiping a rock, a stone, or a method of understanding that are in some of the other religions where they are simply human concocted. Because Jesus was more than human. He was divine at the same time. I know. You can't go on the street corner and explain that to just everybody, right? But we did, we, none of us traveled on spring break so we could just come along and be serious today, right? You know, we could get serious about this thing called Christianity. I mean, we're here because we love the Lord, the Christ, the Jesus who is one. And we want to be like him to the extent that that's possible as fallen humanity. So the actions of Jesus are not simply human or divine, but both. But both. Indissolvable. They are both. Humanity as intended is what we see in the man Jesus. And what you will experience when you are completed and resurrected. Man. Resurrection is a wonderful experience on earth. But we know when we get resurrected that we're still sinful. And we know that next week we'll need resurrecting again, right? But you know, there'll come a day when we'll have that last resurrection. We won't have to be resurrected again. There won't be any more faults. There won't be any more sinfulness. There won't be any more wandering minds. There will, we will be one completely with God, not attacked, or, not attacked or affected by the human nature that has fallen. And you won't talk about liberation, Wow. No more tendonitis. Wow. No more seven-week periods of no golf. Praise God. No more calories in ice cream and donuts. Hallelujah. Every job turns out perfect, wonderful. Every relationship is as if it were pristine in heaven, and everybody is one truly big happy family, praying and hoping for the best for each other even as we go on into eternity. And we say, that's just too much to think about. Exactly. Exactly. Because that's completedness that we cannot know here. We cannot diverge as completely as Jesus did 
because we are of that fallen nature. We will make mistakes. We will have wrong opinions and wrong ideas. We will act sometimes not from the best interest of others, but because of our own best interest. We are human and we are fallen. So how does this play out then in what we want to say about the divergent Jesus? Well, okay. I think it plays out, first of all, in Jesus' life that we look at as a reflection of what Isaiah was talking about in the 43rd chapter, verses 18 and 19. Let me read a couple of those verses to you. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. And listen to these words. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. You see, I believe one of the ways in which Jesus diverges completely foreign to us much of our time, is that Jesus remains future-oriented as his accent, which affects his present in a mighty way and leaves the past behind. And I think his, his emphasis upon the future is what he allows him to embrace every human being where they are regardless of the past. Think of the stories. I'm going to pick 12 people to lead the world. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Would you pick those 12? Would you pick just 12 people to invest the kingdom in? But when one is one with God, they are aware of a wisdom and a plan that we're not. Would you have picked Judas? Even Judas had an opportunity for a better future. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that in the kingdom of God, unlike the earth in which we live, that Jesus sees someone as they are, and understands their past, and yet embraces them anyway. Remember the woman at the well? When he told her, you're right, you've had five husbands, and the person you're living with now is not your husband. Oh, my goodness. Big sinner, right? Front seat sinner. In the church and in the Jewish community back then, she was big time sinner. Not only was she a woman back then, But she had had all these husbands and was living with someone not her husband now. And yet, what did Jesus do? He saw a different future for her, didn't he not? So when we get into a culture that flies in the face so often as we are in now, and it's always been this way, quite frankly, 
where people aren't always making good choices about spiritual things. Jesus does not concentrate upon their fast failures, but instead envisions a new future for them and calls them toward it. Now, it doesn't always work. He called the rich young man to a future too. He said, leave behind your wealth and come and follow me. And the young man walked away. He couldn't do it. But he at least had a future if he chose later on to remember the words of Jesus and seek Jesus again. Jesus had an amazing ability when they drug the woman before the crowd in adultery, trying to trick him into an untenable spot, wanting him to either break the law or condemn the woman so that they could stone her. Jesus didn't either. He he didn't either because, you see, he wanted to sit down and write this message on the dirt that we'll never know what it is. I'm sure a movie's coming out soon telling us what that message was. Because right now there are two movies out, right? We live in a world that doesn't even like Jesus, right, half the time. Oh, they they love him being loving and graceful, but, you know, Jesus is too harsh. Jesus is too radical. He says he's the only way. That doesn't fit our culture. But isn't it ironic? Quite frankly, it's humorous. Here we are at Easter again. How many movies does this make? Now we've got a new movie. He's risen. Is that news? I mean, it changed the whole world 2,000 years ago, so I don't think it's huge news now. But we got a movie for it. In an unbelieving culture, people can go and see he's risen again and be amazed. And if you think that's amazing, they're writing a story that nobody knows, and people are going to go see that too, the Messiah. We're going to learn all about what Jesus was like when he was 5, 6, and 7, 8, 9, and 10, 11, and 12. Oh, we know that moment in 12-year-old, right? He went to the temple. But we're going to have the whole story. I can hardly wait to see that book of fiction. I mean, reality. I mean, I don't know what it'll mean because I haven't seen the show. But we all know there's not really a written record of the childhood of Jesus anywhere. So I'm assuming what the writers have done is they've taken a typical child and they've placed upon a typical child's life in that cultural context the knowledge that his mother and he knows that he's God's son. And they're going to show us, I'm assuming, the mental growth and struggle and realization he comes to as he grows up to be a child. It might be very factual, but we'll never know until we get to heaven, right? But if it'll fill those seats, it'll be okay because somebody will do well. And if somebody come into that show that might be more imagination than anything else as with a cultural context, and they walk out going, you know, that's almost believable that it's worth every dime they spent on making that movie. It is. Because you see, we need to grasp hold of this divergent Jesus in order to move forward. And we need, as people, to be more future-oriented in the present rather than past judges of others' lives. Rather than past judges of our own lives. The healthiest thing that Christians have going for them and they should claim regularly is when they have knowledge that they have sinned, they should repent and rejoice and accept God's goodness and forgiveness and live without a guilty conscience. We're the only people that get to do that. Why on earth do Christians want to hold on to their past mistakes of their own lives? Or 
of the past mistakes of the lives of others. Why are we so judgmental about what's in the past? It's over. In the present, shouldn't we be forgiving and encouraging and calling people, despite the consequences of their past sin, to move powerfully into the future with a clean conscience, doing the best they can? Are you saying, Doug, that past mistakes don't matter? No, they matter. They do matter. They affect people. They do. But they're not determinative about their future. And they should not continue to produce in the believer greater guilt that just never goes away because God has already forgiven us. Now, I think Jesus is also divergent, not only that he had this future orientation, but that he also had a sense of the individual worth of each person that he came into contact with. If only... If only we could live that way. If only every person was important to us. And God gives us all kinds of vexing situations. We just had a lovely dinner last night. We went to a steak place, which is what we do when we want to celebrate. If we got men with us, that's what my wife knows that's important to do. But somebody else actually suggested it. So me with old friends, a past associate pastor and her husband. And we met them and we had a nice dinner and we talked for hours. I know that person who was waiting on our table would wish we would go away so somebody else could sit at that table, but we didn't. We just stayed the whole night. They just got their tip, and that's all they made on that table. We talked, and we talked, and we talked. We got up. We walked out. Two preachers on their way home. Both She's in the pulpit in Princeton, Texas today, and uh, here I am here. And on the way out, a gentleman walks up to the four of us and says, Excuse me, can I talk to you a moment? <laughs> I just started, I, I really wanted to laugh. I mean, I did, but I also was curious, and I wanted to play because I wasn't going to get a lot of sleep that night anyway. But he walks up to us, and he started telling us a sob story. He needed money for a hotel, and he started talking about cars. I got lost in the car story because he had two or three that he had spent so much money on, and now he didn't have enough money to pay $57 for a motel room. I'm not sure a motel room actually cost $57 either, but he kept on talking. He was there in normal slacks and shirt. But he wasn't, uh, I don't know how you describe this fella. My wife had a word for it, I think, and we all kind of laughed after he went off in a sense because I think he might have had a little too few grapes. I'm not for sure, but it's possible. It might also have been possible that he wanted some more grapes. I don't know. Because I didn't have time or opportunity to know the man. We asked him a couple of questions. I said, where's your wife that you're talking about? Oh, she's around the corner drinking some tea. So he did have money enough to buy tea. Just thought about that. Tea in a restaurant, $3. Could have gone toward his room. But that's my mind, right? Uh, Then he gets down and says, could y'all possibly help us out so we'd have a place to stay tonight? Uh, and he tells me where all he used to be. I, I, used to, I lived in such and such. You probably don't know where that is. You say, oh, yeah, we know exactly where that town is. We live just right the road from it. So I probably frightened him a little bit. He had businesses he used to own, but what he really needed was a place to stay. I said, have you eaten? And he said, no, we haven't eaten dinner. So I pulled out a little cash, gave him a little money, and said, well, we'll, we'll help you this much, and maybe you'll get to eat, and maybe this will help get you closer to having that money to stay. And we walked off, and he was tickled to death. We're the greatest people alive. We're wonderful people. And Sally and I knew that already. We were wonderful people. And we knew the people with us were wonderful people too. 
But as he walked off, we all kind of giggled at the same time. Well, we don't know where he's going to spend that money. But you see, it didn't really matter. He needed some help, and we gave him what we could. Now, it's one of those times when the people with us didn't have any money because they you know they're not a whole lot younger than us, so they've gotten in the habit of not carrying cash, too, like y'all, right? Y'all don't need cash. Y'all just need a card, right? Uh, card wasn't going to help that gentleman, right? So he was looking for somebody that had some cash. He figured if you're in there eating steak, he didn't think that you probably charged it or already had the money on it or whatever. So he went on. But the point was, if he was hungry, he could feed his wife and himself that night and give him enough strength to find enough money to stay in the motel. We could have followed him to the motel, but we didn't. We could have done a lot of things, but we felt moved to do what we did. Because whatever situation he was in, he had stooped to that place where he had to beg for something. And we wanted to help in some way that we could. Now, I don't always do that. Sometimes I say, sorry, I can't help you tonight. Don't ask me why I do it. Sometimes and not others. Don't have a great explanation for that, how the Spirit is moving in your life. But I do believe that we need to get in the habit as Christians in the church of seeing the individual worth of every human, regardless of where they are in their present life and regardless of where they've come from in their past life. It is their worth as one created in the image of God, that we must cling to, regardless of the number of mistakes they've made, because that's what Jesus did over and over and over again in the Scriptures. We must be like that. And finally, another way Jesus is divergent in this mission, and boy, if we could just do this. He was divergent by staying on mission. He never lost his way in what God had called him to do. That's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard for us to be as clear about our mission as Jesus was clear about his, but it's possible. It's hard for us to stay focused on our mission because we're busy making a living, doing the things that people do to be alive and well in. But I do believe it is possible for us in whatever vocation we're in to be really focused on doing what God is calling us to do, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. I really do believe that's possible. I do believe it. And to the extent that we stay one with God the Father, as Jesus did when he was on the earth, we will be successful. To the extent that we don't stay one with Jesus, we will fail, need forgiveness, and have to move toward the future again and again and again. And I realize that's a human predicament. So the real question becomes, how much distance is there between those times of repentance and the the amount of time that we spend with God doing his mission? We see the last crux of it in Jesus' life when he goes to the to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays before he knows he's about to die. And he says, you know, Father, this is a bad idea. I I just, you know, I don't want to do this. I'm making this up now. I know he didn't say this in the scriptures, but you and I both know as a fully human person he had those thoughts. How about next week? We could just kind of sneak off down. Nobody would know the difference. 
But pray, 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 sweating in that hot garden, all the disciples falling out of sleep, and he keeps praying, seeking, praying, seeking. And at the end, he says, nevertheless, not my mission, but your mission for me be done. And he got up and he went to the cross willingly because he was focused on what God called him to do. It is my prayer that we will be able to do the same as a congregation and as individuals. Despite our humanness and our lack of being able to diversify completely, that we will be there to occasionally be so divergent that we're completely focused on what God's calling us to do. I think this is an incredibly important time for the church right here in Carrollton, Texas, to be completely focused on what God is calling us to do. Let the past be the past, live fully in the present, and lean into the future and follow the mission that God has given us to do. I pray it will be true for all of us. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that as Jesus and as the Christ, you were one. And you lived a life that caused us to follow you. And to make those choices in life that may lead us away from the ways of the world and lead us deeper into the way that you're calling us to go. If there's anyone here, Lord, who's lost their way, who's lost that sense of your presence and the power of your resurrection, speak to them this morning that they might know that you're here to redeem them. Bless them and bless anyone, Lord, who needs to come to you today as we stand and sing, and anyone who's ready to become a part of this faith community by coming forward this morning. Bless us all, for we are here in your presence, and we glorify your name. Amen.